Hello, folks, and welcome back to another episode of The American Attic, where we deliver dialogue-driven explorations of California history and beyond. Presented by the Sacramento Historical Society and hosted by Eric Swigert, join us as we uncover topics that inspire imagination, inform action, and enrich the present. What makes good leadership? For that matter, what makes bad leadership? How does one reconcile fighting in a war and providing your country service in a conflict that is incredibly controversial? Have you ever wondered what it's like to direct artillery fire while moving at 130 miles an hour through the air? These questions and their answers are all part of today's episode and our discussion with our guest. Our guest in this episode of The American Attic is a retired Sacramento attorney, an author, and a veteran. Prior to being drafted into the Army, our guest attended Columbia Law School where he earned his JD, and in 2021, this Sacramento local published his account of combat life as an artillery officer in Vietnam from 1970 to 1971, which for those of you that know your American history, that was a particularly hot time to be in Vietnam. In his account, Keeping Each Other Alive, I feel like our guest, Norman Heil, captured a major part of what it felt and meant to be attached to an infantry unit, moving through the bush, moving through the terrain, often hostile terrain, of Vietnam in the early 70s. He goes into a lot of detail around his his training, his preparation before getting on a plane and flying across the Pacific, and he shares a lot of detail about leadership, about questioning the motives of your country's involvement and the justice of a war that you're a participant in. He talks a lot about the technical aspects of the role of an artillery Observer, And he goes into a lot of detail that I feel like just paints a very vivid picture of what it was like for this particular participant in one of the most controversial wars in American history. The book is titled Keeping Each Other Alive, and it can be found on Amazon. You can reach out to the publisher directly or order through Amazon, and you can find it just by searching the title of the book or the author's name, Norman Heil. It is a fascinating read and a fascinating look at this relatively misunderstood war, especially when it comes to what life was like for the average grunt, the average soldier. And just a quick reminder to our listeners, uh, views and opinions expressed in this episode and most of our episodes reflect those of the speakers only as we seek to uncover details from the past, a past that many of us, many of our listeners may even remember. So with that, Please enjoy this rambling conversation with our guest, Sacramento local and author, Norman Heil. Sounds good. Um, Well, again, we're here with Norman Heil. He is the author of Keeping Each Other Alive. I've got a a hard copy of, of your work in front of me, Norm, and excited to dive into this book, your experiences, and just kind of go from there. So thank you for taking the time this morning to to check in. My pleasure. Awesome. You know, we've got some some questions that we were uh 
We were sharing in advance of this recording to kind of make sure this was a guided conversation. And I, I think a good place that could that we could start would be before, you know, before the war, before you were a, a forward observer placing artillery and supporting artillery support in in um for infantry and then from the air, but taking a step back from that and looking at um what you were you know, turning back the pages of time and the remarks you make in the book about uh, where you were at leading into the conflict, leading into the war. You know, I, I think an interesting place we could start is, can you describe a little bit about your your mindset, you know, before you were uh, drafted, before you were deployed, you know, where you were at before the conflict? And, and to what extent would you say that you're your mind was made up about the Vietnam War before you were even drafted. Were you following it from afar? Were you really were you were you pretty um, close to the action in terms of following the political developments that led up to the Vietnam War? Well, I was in college, uh, uh, and then my first year of law school when uh, I was drafted, and the. Feeling on campus, uh, both in college and in law school, was very much against the war. Mm -hmm. And I was um, certainly not excited about either the policy of the war and, uh, or the idea that I might be actually drafted and sent to fight it. You know, originally, I believed Lyndon Johnson uh, uh, saying we needed to do this, but it clearly quickly became something that was uh, a disaster. And that really was brought home uh, in January of 1968, when I was in my first year of law school, when the Tet Offensive occurred. The Tet Offensive suddenly showed everyone in the United States that the people who were telling us what was going on there were not telling us the truth. And that, in fact, we were not winning the war. And that, in fact, uh, we were fighting an enemy that was very determined to take their country back. And I think that uh, it, it, as we learned at that time, the Geneva Convention back in the 50s, we had agreed that there would be a unification of Vietnam. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was put in a treaty that we signed. And then we basically abandoned that treaty and refused to allow elections to occur in Vietnam to be unified. And the fact that we were now fighting a war to keep uh, that country from being a single country just uh, seemed uh, incredibly uh, unfortunate and improper for us. And uh, it was against all of the principles that we hold dear with respect to allowing people to determine their own governments. So as we, I, we got into uh, uh, my first year in law school, there were uh, a lot of uh, demonstrations, uh, marches, mm -hmm. um, people were protesting. And um, as the year of 1968 went through, we had the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, where there were incredible riots in the mm -hmm. streets. We had the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., we had the assassination of Robert Kennedy, all of these things occurring, showing that our society was uh, uh, on the edge of uh, collapsing from yeah. 
the disenchantment with the war and with the way uh, things were going uh, in the country. And so that was the climate that I was looking at as I suddenly began to face the prospect that I would be drafted. Yeah. And just out of curiosity, was was any of this coming up in the when you were at law school, was any of were any of these topics coming up in the courses that you were taking? So were you in any seminars or any discussions with professors and, and with the your educators where these these topics came up? Not in class because mm-hmm. the law school curriculum was very set down as to we took contracts and torts and civil procedure and those types of things, which didn't really come up. Okay. But as uh, many will remember, in uh, the spring of 1968, as I was finishing my first year in law school, Columbia University, where I was going to law school, basically was taken over by student protesters. And the place was shut down for the last month of the year, uh, of the school year. Uh And um, there was a tremendous amount of of, uh, students being beaten up by cops um, the administration basically uh, try, closing the doors and locking them, mm-hmm. uh, stuff like that. So it was a a world, even in law school, that was entirely disrupted by the social unrest that was linked in large part to Vietnam, as well as other racial and other uh, inequities that were going on. Sure. Yeah. No, I'm, you're you're making me think about, I, I experienced a little bit of that when I was at doing my undergraduate, uh, but I, I can't imagine it was anywhere near the level of of what you were saying. I, my undergraduate was 2008 to 2012. I remember some shutdowns, but just, uh, I, I don't, I don't, can't imagine it was a similar situation. Uh, it was, uh, it, it was eye-opening to everyone. And of course it was, uh, you had to choose a side and that yeah. was, uh, made it particularly difficult at school because uh, we there were a lot of different views that wanted to be expressed, but it was you know, either for them or against them. Yeah. And and kind of uh, jumping in, kind of straddling two questions that I, I, I shared with you in advance. So it sounded like the climate definitely impacted the educational circles you were involved in. And I, I, I don't want to... Uh, go open up too many cans of worms or anything like that. But was was any of this coming out in your family? And feel free to be as specific or unspecific as you want. But did any of this come out in your either friendship circles or these discussions you were having with friends and with family, as well as the demonstrations and the protests that you were seeing in a, in a u- university setting? Well, as the um, uh, draft began to come after me, my family was standoffish. They did not want me to go to jail and they didn't want yeah. me to go to Canada, Yeah, which were two of the options. And my father had uh, been in World War II and served honorably. And my brother had been in the Navy. He was, he was an older brother, had been in the Navy and served honorably. So I was uh, uh, not going to get support from them for you know being a draft dodger. Yeah. or going to Canada or whatever. But I, 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 the other part to, I remember my classmates in law school, we, we used to play touch football. And if anybody fell or, or tripped or anything looked like they were hurt, we'd all run over to them and say, 4F, 4F. <laughs> and that meant 
that they were no longer going to be drafted because they would be uh, rated as, as 4F for purposes of their uh, uh, physical ability to, to be drafted. Uh, unfortunately, right. nothing ever happened to me that made me 4F. Sure. Yeah. And then, okay. No, that sounds like a, a extremely charged climate. And I would say just from my um, observations, I guess you could say of this from afar, obviously I was not around yet, but that seems to align with just what's currently in the, um, you know, the U.S. history curriculum and what's being taught in California classrooms, at least as of 2016, when I wrapped up my my um, teaching career, uh, was that this was an incredibly charged time. Obviously, it appeared differently for different folks on a, a racial axis, on a economic axis, what have you. But um, yeah, that's interesting. It definitely aligns with um, some of the coverage of this era in American history. Well, let me just comment on that just for a second. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact of the matter is that leading up to the time that I was drafted, uh, the people who were being drafted were people from high school uh, who did not have the ability to go to college because college was a deferment. So there was an automatic inequity in the way in which we were choosing the people who went to the war. Uh -huh. And there was another part to that, which was that clearly black students who were drafted or, or high school students graduates were drafted, were drafted at a much greater level, and they were being sent to the more dangerous combat assignments. Mm -hmm. And I saw that went in Vietnam when I was there, but it was clearly a very unfair and a charged atmosphere uh, in the Army for those of us uh, who were uh, ultimately drafted in, into service. Yeah. Well, and, and that makes me wonder, you know, you mentioned your father served in World War II. I think it was Army. I think it was in the Army branch, if I remember. Yes. Was his, was he a volunteer? Did he get drafted? What, what Were there any similarities and differences between his involvement in that war versus versus yours? Obviously, two different wars, completely different time periods. But, um, but yeah, just out of curiosity, was he a volunteer? Uh, he was not. He was drafted uh sort of mid to late part of the war because he had a specialty working for IBM. Mm. Uh, that was something that the military needed. But when he did go in, because of that specialty, he was assigned to the United States to do things related to his his specialty. And therefore, he never went overseas, was never in any danger. Got it. That's why I was born, because I was born in 1945. Yeah. Um, he was in the United States and could come home on leave. Uh, for weekends and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and then looking at the, um, you know, so, so once you, and, and maybe, and you can talk more about this for sure, just what the process was like being drafted. So you're in law school, there are deferments already set up. It sounds like uh, there's a deferment structure on the draft process, but it sounded like from what I was reading and keeping each other alive, it sounded like those, def that deferment structure was, Definitely um, subject to change at the discretion of the federal government. Yes. Uh, what happened uh, was that leading up to the Tet Offensive, um, if you were in college or graduate school, you were deferred mm -hmm. uh, until you finished those courses or you were 28 years old. So 
people who were fortunate like me who could go to college and then start law school were, were deferred. And I was mm-hmm. expecting that I would have a deferment from the draft for another two years because I had only finished one year of law school. But when the Tet Offensive happened, um, General Westmoreland, who was the head of troops uh, in, in Vietnam, told the, uh, the president that he needed a lot more uh, troops. And so what they did at the draft level was to take away deferments for anyone who was graduated from college that year or who was in his first year of graduate school and law school being graduate school. So what happened was instead of getting the additional two years of deferment that I had expected before the Tet Offensive, I was suddenly uh, going to be uh, subject to the draft at the end of that school year, Mm -hmm. first year of law school. And because they tended to, well, the, the rules were that they drafted the oldest first who were eligible. Those of us who had been deferred for college and the first year of graduate school were automatically the oldest people in our draft board who hadn't been drafted. And we were therefore drafted immediately. And I got a, a notice from my draft board uh, when they made that change saying, in June, you will be drafted. Wow. And uh, there was no ifs, ands, or buts. Yeah. Um, and and so I was. And, and the other thing that was interesting about that was that the group of people who went through basic training and advanced individual training in the Army with me were, like me, people who had either just graduated from college or had been in first year graduate school instead of kids from high school. Mm-hmm. And we were a very strange group for the instructors and the sergeants there trying to figure out what to do with us because we were not the usual type of people that they had been dealing with. Yeah. No, that makes me <clears throat> that makes me think of a few places in the book where you talk about and this I don't even think this was in a a, a question that we discussed, but at a few places in your book you talk about a what sounds like is a, a willingness to uh, not talk back, but a willingness to, if you had a grievance, and this is during your deployment, you know, when you're overseas, if you saw something that didn't sit right with you, um, at a few instances in the book, you mentioned bringing that up, you know, bringing that up to, um, to a, a superior officer or a commander or something like that. And, um, yeah, I, I was as I was reading the book, I was wondering about that, and I wonder if that was done differently, or if maybe you had a a, more, a greater willingness to do that, you know, based on your background as compared to other troops that were already deployed, or or if there was any difference there. Well, I was the oldest person in the infantry company in the field that sure. when I was out there. Even the captain, uh, company commander, was younger than I was. Yeah. So there was that to be. Uh, to be dealt with. The other thing about, at least from from my situation in the field as an artillery observer with an infantry company was that that I was sort of not fish or fowl. I wasn't an infantry person. I was there to help them, but I was an artilleryman. And so I always had a little different way of looking at things. And, uh, you know, they respected that as soon as they saw that I could provide help to them and uh, I could bring artillery in to help try to keep us alive and trying to uh, help uh, blow up booby traps or whatever it was. And so I think they respected that. Good. Yeah. No, that was something I was thinking a lot about is with a conflict like the Vietnam War, where there is a lot, you know, we've already mentioned the word, it's a charged environment. 
I, I wonder how much that needed to be navigated in the ranks uh, once you were deployed of, and this might be a question later later down our, our list here, but you know what that looked like if a commander gave an order that a you know someone in the ranks disagreed with what that looked like and how that was navigated in those scenarios where it presented itself. Well, it was a real problem um, for everybody because there were a lot of situations where uh, officers, particularly, were you know shot in the back of the head or uh, had a hand grenade thrown into their into their tent or something like that by somebody who was unhappy with them. And uh-huh. I was very concerned when I first got to the field uh, with, with the infantry company that I not be in a situation where somebody would have a reason. Uh, to want to do me harm. Sure. Um, and one of the things that kept me alive was that I was fairly successful in bringing in artillery for a lot of different missions. And that made the people realize that they needed to keep me there. And yeah. it also meant that I spent a certain amount of time trying to show the, um, the, you know, 17 and 18 year olds who were there as infantry, uh, uh, soldiers, that I was somebody that that could help them with my skill as a uh, as a forward observer. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, m- moving a, a step back from that, and just focusing in on the um, you know the period that you received you received notice that you were going to be drafted. You know, what did the next? What was the time period between when you received your notice that you your deferment was? Um, no longer a deferment, and you were going to be drafted. What was the total time period between receiving that notice and then getting on a plane, getting on a plane to fly over? Well, uh, it actually was almost two years because what happened was I um, made the decision to apply for officer candidate school. And when when I was accepted, um, that meant that even though I'd have to spend an extra year in the Army, uh, I, d- I would have to go through the additional training of officer candidate school. And that meant for the first year in the Army, I went to basic training and then advanced individual training and then six months of officer candidate school, graduating as a uh, second lieutenant. Mm-hmm. And then my assignment was to, for the first year, was to be an instructor at the uh, artillery school. So I didn't actually go overseas for two years after being drafted. Um, and during that time, the war was going on and, and um, you know, we were all being trained and sort of brainwashed into accepting the fact that we were going to be in combat and we were going to be uh, out in the field and we were likely to step on booby traps and we were likely to get shot and all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So there was a two-year period for me at any rate where I was having to deal with being in the Army and deal with the fact that I was going to be in combat. Yeah. How soon in that two-year period did you know that you th- did you know the role that you would have uh, when you were in Vietnam as a as a forward observer? Was that something that happened in kind of the middle? You realized that you were this was the best track for you, or what did that process look like? Well, we were trained uh, at in officer candidate school to be forward observers. Uh, And so that was the job of a artillery lieutenant in Vietnam. And usually uh, that meant that that you were 
forward observer for the first part of your tour, and then usually you rotate it out of the field and into the fire direction control back where the guns are uh, to, to, to take the fire missions from the forward observers and give them to the guns. Mm-hmm. So that's what I was expecting. And what happened was I started off when I arrived and was put in with, with the infantry company as forward observer. And so that was exactly what I had been trained and, and I'd been dreading, but that's what I was expecting would happen to me. Yeah. Um, the second part of my tour, uh, instead of being in fire direction control, for whatever reason, the army put me in a light plane and I flew as an aerial observer. And, mm-hmm. um, so instead of being back at the relative safety of the, of the, uh, fire base, I was flying over enemy territory. Um, I don't know why they did that. Um, <laughs> the army has its ways of mm-hmm. making these decisions that who knows. Yeah. And, and I wanted to, to dive into that because I think a lot of our listeners probably, myself included, before I started the book, had very little knowledge of, of a forward observer and the role that, that artillery has on the, on the battlefield and, and your, your relationship to it in that role. Um, but real quick, before we do, I, I had one more question on, you know, that two-year period going to officer training school, um, being drafted, did your views on the war at all change during this time? Was there any any new perspective that you got when you were drafted at all? Or was it was it pretty pretty set throughout this whole process? It certainly didn't change. Uh, I knew that this was a disaster of a war. Uh, and that it was not going to get any better. And mm-hmm. as time went by, uh, Richard Nixon be, being elected as president, and he claimed that he was winning the war by pacification. And so the whole hope that each of us had leading up to actually going to Vietnam was that we would get in a pacified area and it would be relatively quiet. Mm-hmm. And uh, Unfortunately for me, I was sent to a place where the war was hot. And it's when I got there um, and I was flying out to the infantry company on a helicopter, I asked the helicopter pilot, well, what, what do we control looking down at the ground below us? And he said, none of it. Wow. And that told me that we were in uh, a situation where we basically lost the war even before I got there. And uh, all we were doing was doing what we were ordered to do because we weren't going to make any change and we were never going to win this war. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, and and that's, again, I know I noted earlier that I'm trying to think about how representative that perspective might've been. Obviously I would imagine in the ranks, there are some diehard career military folks um, whose perspectives might on that war might be might be different. I imagine you encountered those people during your deployment and during your your activity. Um, but diving into your your role um, once you were deployed, so you you get on a plane, you fly out to to this new country. Had you had you done much traveling? Had you been outside the United States before going to Vietnam, or was this the first time interacting with a a whole new geographic area, a whole new culture, all of these things? Uh, actually, I, I had fortunately been outside the United States for a good portion of my life because uh, I grew up in Venezuela uh, wow. with my father working for U.S. Steel in an iron ore uh, uh, 
operation there. And I had been to Europe and South, South America. And I've been to actually to Southeast Asia and Hong Kong and stuff like that on vacations wow. and stuff. So this was not new to me. But I have to say that I had never in all those times in the tropics and I grew up in the tropics. I'd never been as hot and uncomfortable as I was in Vietnam. It was unbelievably uh, hot and um, humid and just sometimes you didn't think you'd be able to breathe. Unreal. Yeah, the the humidity is something um, I don't miss being here in California. It's nice not to have to deal with much of that. But more more to your question, um, uh, as I was getting there um i what i saw immediately particularly in the infantry company that i was assigned to was that there was a lack of leadership mm. and that lack of leadership was manifested in large part by the fact that we had no ncos and non-commissioned officers in the field with us mm-hmm. um, they all had re-upped as they say uh, signed up for a, a longer term in the army by getting a job that meant they were in the rear. Mm-hmm. And uh, meanwhile, we only had at the most one or two infantry platoon lieutenants, uh, platoon leaders. Uh, we had a captain in my infantry company, but usually no platoon leaders. And so basically, what we were doing was trying to stay alive with a bunch of people who had been drafted much high percentage of minorities and blacks mm-hmm. who were 18 years old and they had no leadership at all from sergeants and in many cases not even a lieutenant a platoon leader um and we were supposed to go out and fight in that situation wow. and by the time that i was with the company for a couple of weeks, we were down to almost half of our required soldiers for an infantry company to be able to perform. So we were, we had a lot of people who were who killed or wounded. And we had a lot of people who, uh, you know, would leave for R and R or something like that. It was, mm-hmm. it was, there was just no leadership in the field. That sounds um, like maybe this is obvious, but that sounds like a major problem if you are overseeing a military intervention in any part of the world, if there is a, a, a absence of leadership, how much did you observe or, or did you hear about at the time? How much of that was spoken about or was addressed by by military uh, lead, leadership or or military personnel? Um, that sheer absence of on the ground leadership, how much would you say that was addressed or even aware of by the folks you were working with? You know, uh, I, I have no idea whether the high-ranking officers understood that, but I saw so many instances where that fact led to the death of of units in the field because they simply weren't led. Um, but uh, you know, it was it was a war where the field grade officers were talking majors, lieutenant colonels, colonels mm-hmm. on up uh, were getting the type of combat leadership points mm. that was great for their careers. Mm-hmm. And they weren't in any terrific danger the way we were in the field. Mm-hmm. 
And so it, 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 it just never computed to me. And I think an example of how really uh, terrible the leadership was back in the uh, rear, uh, we were ordered one day to go from point A to point B, which is, uh, which was only, you know, 500 meters on, a, on the ground. If you looked at a map mm-hmm. problem was it was straight uphill. They didn't know how to read a map well enough to know that they were ordering us to go uphill mm-hmm. in that heat with all of our packs and all of the weapons that we had and the mm-hmm. mortar shells and all of that. And we were totally exposed. And of course, a couple of people got shot as we were climbing up this mountain. Wow. Uh, just, uh, and we had people, you know, keel over in heat prostration. I mean, yeah. and all they had, all they need to know is look at the map to see that the concert line said they were sending us up a hill. Or yeah, the topographic maps. If the person that you're following commands from has difficulty with maps, I feel like that's a big red flag. That's a big, big red flag. It, it is a big red flag. And that one of the things that I brought to the table with that infantry company was somebody who could read a map mm-hmm. because the most important thing for an artilleryman uh, for an observer is to be able to know where you are exactly so you mm-hmm. don't uh, shoot artillery bounds onto yourself. Yeah. Um, so the infantry company was also liking me because I knew exactly where we were mm-hmm. and I knew therefore how I could bring in artillery safely on t- uh, to help us. Well, and that was one of the questions I wanted to touch touch on was, you know, what, what could you, uh, you know, briefly give a survey on kind of what that role required? So, you know, map reading, knowledge of terrain, knowledge of where you are at all times and being able to to adjust that based on your unit's movements in the field, you know, what, what is a artillery forward observer and kind of what, what do they do taking a step back and looking at, looking at that role across the board? In a conventional war, the forward observer usually is somebody who's on an outpost looking out over a place where the front lines are. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he can, uh, you know, with binoculars, uh, spot where the enemy is and spot targets and then figure out where that is on a map and then tell the guns where to shoot by giving them a, the coordinates on a map as to where mm-hmm. they where, where want to shoot to. In Vietnam, that didn't exist because there were no front lines. The only place that we controlled was where we were standing as an infantry company. So forward observers with infantry companies were basically grunts who then could bring in artillery to help support the infantry company on the ground. So that's what I was doing was spotting to the extent I could where the enemy might be, or when we saw them, uh, where we might be on artillery and make sure that we could shoot it onto them rather than onto us. The other part to it, which I started doing when I figured out what I could do to help mm-hmm. prevent booby traps from hurting uh, our our soldiers was to fire artillery in advance of where we're going to walk. And that would blow up booby traps so that the infantry point man walking out across uh, the area to where we're going to go wouldn't have to worry about stepping on a booby trap. Um, And so that won me a lot of points with the infantry because it, it, it helped them. But Nevertheless, wherever we walked, we walked in the footsteps of the person in front of us. Yeah. 
so that we were not stepping on a, a booby trap. Um, so the, the other part to what I was doing also was that um, artillery is not only shells that explode, but it's, it's, it's uh, illumination rounds that light up the sky at night. Mm-hmm. And we used that very effectively at night to be able to light up where the enemy was and at times to help us uh, when somebody was, was wounded or something like that to, to get them uh, back to the, to the perimeter so that we could uh, get them medevaced out. Yeah, that definitely helps. And, <clears throat> you know, you mentioned maps. Any other kind of tools of the trade that that set you apart from the other infantrymen you were with? I would imagine you had to have a, uh, a, a ready access to a radio, you know, since you're going back and forth with different um, fire bases and things like that. But any other tools that you were working with that maybe the, the serviceman next to you who wasn't a forward observer wouldn't need to know how to operate? Yeah, well, compass. Uh, hmm. Compass was very important. Uh, for purposes of figuring out exactly where we were on the ground and for figuring out where uh, park targets were. Mm-hmm. Um, and our maps themselves were an incredibly important tool. Uh, and my maps with the grease pencil were what I used to plot fire missions and also to be able to figure out exactly where we were. Uh, and it was important uh, for me to tell the infantry company commander when we were talking about where we're going to go for me to be able to say, well, look, this is exactly where we are. And, and these are the problems we have if we go in this direction mm-hmm. uh, with respect to uh, roads, streams, enemy sites, stuff like that. Okay. So a lot of tools I would imagine, <clears throat> and this is all in addition to the regular equipment that you're carrying standard issue type stuff, um, steel pot, I think it's called in the book, you know, those heavy helmets yeah. that everybody's wearing. Is there a, was there, a, and I would imagine things are standardized only to the extent that they can be standardized. Every combat situation that you encounter would be unique in the challenges that it that it um, brings to the table. But are you able to kind of walk through like um, maybe a kind of a representative example of when you would bring in fire support and what that would look like. Maybe you've, you're have you in the field already. You've identified a target. What are the steps after that that would follow for a forward observer once you have a target identified um, and you're hoping to engage that target? Well, I would uh, use the radio to call back to the um, the guns that were on the fire base mm-hmm. um, that we operated out of. And I would call in a fire mission which meant that I would say, here's what the target coordinates are uh, that you should shoot at. And this is what I'm shooting at. And uh, this is the type of fuse that I think you should use on the, on the uh, shells that you're going to be firing. Um, and then they would call me back and say, they were going to do send what I'd asked for or, if there was some reason not to, they would t- tell me why. And then after we got clearance, um, because they had to check to make sure they weren't firing on some friendly spot, mm-hmm. um, uh, they would send out a, a round that would be a, a, a round that would tell us where we were. Now, um, one of the things that uh, was important back then was the uh, 
weather because it affected how far uh, artillery shells went and, and mm-hmm. all of that. Um, and so usually you could fire a artillery shell within oh, 50 meters of where you thought the target was. Mm-hmm. And then what you did was adjust, tell them, okay, you're 50 meters to the left, go to the right 50 meters and add 20 meters to, to further on, and then you'll hit my target. Mm-hmm. And so that, so we would adjust the artillery onto the target. And that was the way a, a mission went. And then um, uh, once you had hit the target as close as you wanted to, then you would, you would, what they call fire for effect, which meant all six of the guns would shoot at that particular spot. Yeah, got and, it. Uh, they would they would come out. So fire fire for effect was given only only when you knew the the rounds were landing where you needed them to. Exactly. Got it. Okay. I mean, I it's still it um it blows my mind because I have enough difficulty just with with uh you know i've been recreational shooting before down at a shooting range or something like that and just handling a a standard rifle and hitting a target i have enough difficulty with i can't imagine when the stakes are as high as as what you're describing well the the thing that uh i guess is you have to know is how far these guns can shoot and the, the the smaller of the howitzers, which is what we were using most of the time, the 105 millimeter howitzers, could 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 shoot uh, around about five miles. Wow! Uh, so that was the range that they had, um, and the farther they had to go, the less accurate they were, obviously. And the weather affected everything as far as how far the round would actually go, um, but. Um, they were incredibly accurate and they've gotten even better i understand now we also had some bigger guns the 155s uh which had bigger shells uh, had a more explosive power um and the eight inch guns were could shoot as far as seven miles and had even bigger shells so Mm -hmm. there were different situations where you would use different guns if they were available to you Mm -hmm. but it was something that I trained at the artillery school for, and it was uh, something that in Vietnam was very helpful. By the way, uh, I was interested last night to see on a report about Ukraine that artillery forward observers in Ukraine are using drones. Mm -hmm. So they don't actually go out into the place close to where the firing is going to be. They send a drone out to see if they can pick up where the enemy is. Yeah. And when the drone reports back that they have seen the enemy, then they fire artillery again without ever having to go out to where the the enemy is. Uh, so it's a very different uh, situation for the forward observer than it was in my situation. Yeah. It, it, and it, I would imagine it brings <clears throat> a whole new slew of... Uh, calculations that are required and things like that when doing it through a unmanned, you know, unmanned drone, like you're seeing a lot nowadays with those, those little um, devices buzzing around in the air. But, you know, so far what we've been talking about is um, the work you were doing from the ground, doing these calculations, making these adjustments when you were attached on the ground to an infantry group. And real quick, just before we move on to the next, next section of questions, 
How did that change? I know in the second half of your book, you talk about being up in the air. So you're in, a, I think it was a, maybe a Cessna or you're in a little sing, single engine prop plane, it sounded like. Um, yes. How did that change and being on the ground with an infantry unit versus you and a pilot flying above the battlefield? How did that change your approach to some of these uh, responsibilities you had? Well, uh, in the air, again, being able to read a map was very important because when you're firing artillery from the air in support of troops on the ground, you don't want to hit the troops mm-hmm. uh, on your side. You want to hit people on the other side. So being able to know uh, exactly where it is you're firing on is important. Uh, and when you're in a plane, you're generally circling in a situation like that. And so everything keeps changing as far as where you're looking at your map. So that mm-hmm. makes it uh, a lot more difficult to figure out uh, where you are and, and, and where it is that you're firing to. Uh, another thing that is interesting and difficult about firing from the air is that um, you have to make sure that you don't get hit by your own rounds in the air. And so you uh, fly in a, in a sort of a, a, a semicircle around the target with the uh, other end being where the guns are, so you don't get hit with the, with the uh, ordnance in the air. Um, getting targets from the air was a lot easier than on the ground because you can, it looks like a map. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were very uh, useful to people on the ground because we could see a lot better than they could. Uh, exactly where the target was. If they would tell us generally where the target was, we could usually see it, and then we could get a much better target location coordinates from the map, give it to the guns. And then one of the great things about being in the in the air was that I had access to a lot of different artillery batteries, uh, different size guns, different location. And so I, I had the ability to have two or three different uh, batteries of artillery guns firing when we needed it on a target. And that mm-hmm. was always fun. But then the problem again was you wanted to make sure you didn't get hit by one of the rounds in the air from one of the batteries that was firing. Uh, Did that ever happen? Did you ever hear hear of that occurring when uh, with any of the other aerial observers? No, uh, we were both the pilots and the planes and the uh, aerial observers were very cautious about not getting hit with artillery. And um, we managed during the time that I was there not to get hit by our own artillery, but it was always a great concern. Uh, And there was a a radio channel that we had in the plane that told us where artillery fire was coming from just in general in the area so that we could make sure that we didn't get hit by something that had nothing to do with what we were doing. I, so. so many variables, so yeah. many variables. I'm reminded of this. Uh, this conversation is reminding me. I think <clears throat> um, there's a famous series of photos from from a World War II bombing run, I believe, um, over over Europe somewhere, and it's a series of photos looking down from a bomber releasing its payload and dropping its bombs over um, occupied Europe, and it is unfortunate because it knocks off the, you see a bomber below it and it knocks off the tail fin of 
the bomber below it. And I just can't imagine, you know, that type of mistake and, oh, yeah, it's the stakes, you know, how high the stakes are on some of these missions and the, the calculations that need to be made. And right where you, right when you know where you are, you're in a new place. <laughs> Which, right. When you're moving that fast uh, in the air, you know, nothing is, is static. Everything is changing at all times. Yeah. But one of the parts to it that I think uh, made it uh, livable was that the radios on the uh, the bird dogs that I was flying in had a, four channels that you could monitor at one time. So we would mm-hmm. listen to uh, the channel that met, said where the artillery was. We listened to the channel where we were firing the guns and we listened to the uh, uh, airport company's uh, home uh, radios and then the last thing we did, we had the fourth one. So we would listen to Armed Forces Radio Rock and Roll. And we could have all of them going on at once. And you just flip the switch if you wanted to say something to one of them. But you uh-huh. could listen to it. So it was, it was well, I was up there uh, firing artillery and doing all this stuff. And me in the background, we were listening to Greetings Clearwater or somebody like that singing wow. in the background. Wow. That must have been a pretty surreal experience at a few Very different... Surreal few different times. Yeah. Well, I, you know, this is, this, you're spurring a lot of curiosity on my part, and I'm sure we could spend another, uh, another few hours talking about some of these things at least, but I did want to make sure we spent some time on, on kind of your, your observations of the war, um, you know, looking back uh, more or less 50 years. And then, um, <clears throat> you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about your, your book as well. Um, so after your, your deployment, after your tours ended, um, you know, and you were returning in the process of returning back to civilian life, um, did you notice any of these, uh, skills, any of these abilities that we were just describing, um, were transferable? Maybe I know, I know you were practicing law for a long time. So in my mind, I'm trying to connect the dots, Maybe in in some ways, I mean, communication would be the biggest thing is being able to communicate complex topics between which you were doing in the bird dogs, Um, you know, maybe communication skills. I'm not sure. But did you notice anything that was transferable or was it pretty much your tour ended? You kind of wiped your hands of the whole thing and, and then moved on. Well, it's an interesting question. Uh, Obviously, I never got to shoot artillery again. Every once mm-hmm. in a while, I, I look out at what I could see and, boy, and say, I could really blow that up very quickly. <laughs> sure. um, but uh, I think the thing that um, I did learn a lot about um, was leadership. And I think that um, that came in handy uh, as a lawyer when I was in charge of a, a large law office here in Sacramento. Um and and I and I think what I learned mostly was what not to do because that's what I saw most in the army was yeah. bad leadership. Uh, and I'm not saying that it was people were were bad people. I'm just saying that they just uh, didn't appreciate what people who were under their wing were doing for them uh-huh. and how important those little roles were and and how they people who did that needed to be told how valuable they were and i think that was i i, I learned that 
in the army in spades because uh, people were not treating the people who served them in a way that I would like to be treated. And I certainly uh, learned that uh, I wasn't going to do that when I got into a leadership position. Sure. And was that kind of, so after you completed officer training school, was that one of the first times in your life you were ever kind of put in charge of other people like that? You know, in that way, you went from law school, where I would imagine, you know, you were pursuing your career, you were pursuing your professional ambitions, and all of a sudden you find yourself in a in a very high stakes situation in a f- different country where you're in charge of the well-being of other groups of people. Would you say your Vietnam experience was kind of the first time that you were put in, in a position like that? Well, certainly it was the most uh, uh, dangerous type of situation to be in. I had been in leadership roles in school and in uh, singing groups and other uh, uh, student government stuff like that. But that was certainly the uh, war gave me a chance to be a leader uh, in the most dire of circumstances. And that certainly made me feel different about how I wanted to lead other people. Um, But the other thing that uh, we always used to say to each other while while we were there in in Vietnam, when somebody would give us some ridiculous order to do something, we would say, well, let's not do it. What can they do to us? Send us to Vietnam? We're already there. (laughs) Yeah. uh, but I, I did. I did take some lessons from that, and I appreciate there were some wonderful officers who uh, in in Vietnam who did listen to me when I tried to explain to them why what they were asking us to do was not only ineffective but likely to get people killed. And there mm-hmm. were a number of higher ranking officers who listened to me when I explained that to them, and they were at least willing to listen. Uh, That was important to me, even though they sent me right back out to do the same thing. At least I felt that they'd listened to me. Sure. Well, and there's, there's definitely a lesson there. I think I'm, I'm just thinking of my, my, my own professional life and things like that, of being able to, that's the role of a leader. I feel like is is being able to span both worlds. Obviously there's a larger mission. There's a larger objective, but being able to listen to the folks that are literally on the ground or, you know, um, heavily involved in the details and making sure that bo- communication is going in both directions, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's key. You, you, you can learn so much when you talk to people who are out there actually doing the job. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you keep in touch with uh, or, or kept in touch in the decades after your tours? Did you keep in touch with anybody that you served with? I think I read a remark in the book that you were um, you joined some veterans groups after after Vietnam. Yes, uh, I a couple of people who I went, went to OCS with who were not in my unit in Vietnam, but I was close to. I've kept in touch with them, and uh, as a result of my book being published, uh, a number of people who are artillery fort observers have contacted me saying, gee, this sounds like what I did. And I really appreciated that, that uh, what you went through and that you were able to, to report it because that's what I went through. And then I actually had somebody from my 
infantry company contact me who wow. um, was very excited to to read about it and his photo is actually in the book wow um, so that was nice so uh you know i about once a, every two or three weeks i get a an email or a call from somebody who says hey i did what you did or hey i yeah. was in the same spot as you were and thanks for thanks for writing about it yeah no, and and that that was when I was reading it. That was what struck me the most is that your your ability to <clears throat> make the reader, regardless of their background, make the reader appreciate the circumstances a little bit more that that you and a lot of other service servicemen were dealing with um, over there. I felt very close to the action uh, reading that book, and it definitely came away with a better appreciation. Obviously, there's some aspects of it that I will never understand, never having lived through it and and uh, felt the humidity and felt what it was like to hear bullets, you know, flying above your head. But um, no, I appreciate that. And I'm glad it I'm glad it's connected with other people as well that maybe they, they haven't written a book, but they were able to read it and feel a connection that way, too. Dial, diving into that topic a little bit more, and I know we're approaching the hour mark, so I think we're we're uh, clo- we're close to uh, wrapping things up. But I, I wanted to ask. I know the pu- the book was published in twenty twenty one. I think it said, but w- what was the process like for you to decide to put all put put your letters, put your photographs, and put pen to paper? Uh, was that an easy process for you? Kind of what? Why did you decide to do that? Well, that's a, a a hard question to answer. There's so many parts to it. Um, first of all, I, I I tried to avoid talking about what happened to me in the war and what happened mm-hmm. to those people I served with because it was painful and because people who hadn't been through it, at least from my perspective, didn't seem to want to know. Mm-hmm. And so for many years, I just kept it bottled up. Um, I did, however, um, want to at least tell my family and friends and anybody else who would listen what happened, because I think that's I wanted them to know uh, what part of me was that, that they didn't know about. And I also wanted there to be at least some uh, recitation of, of, of the problems that we faced and hope that we could avoid going into the, a similar situation in the future. So when the pandemic hit a couple of years ago, I decided it was time to write my book, yeah. even though it was 50 years later. Um, and I was fortunate because I had the photos uh, that I'd taken and I had um, the letters that I had written from the field to my family, mm-hmm. which I found uh, just about two years ago uh, in a trunk in the attic. Mm-hmm. And with that, as a uh, those letters gave me the timeline and the place of where, where everything was. So then I had to sit down and write, and it was very difficult at first. I, I it was like sort of making myself go into PTSD. Yeah. Um, but as time went by, as I got more into it, it lessened, and, and I think it was a very cathartic experience. Um, and as I got a first draft together, um, I let my my wife and and my sister in law read it, and and they 
they liked it. So that said, okay, this is worth pursuing. So I, I then did two or three more drafts. And then uh, a friend of mine got me in touch with the publisher and uh, mm-hmm. uh, I was able to publish it. So uh, it, it's something that comes out of the pandemic to this extent that I had time at home with nothing to do. Sure. Um, and um, also it was time to get it off my chest. Yeah. Um, so that, that's, that's the background of it. And, and I am very pleased that it's been well received. Well, it, and it ha- speaking from my own experience, of course, it's <clears throat> definitely been well received. I'm glad I got my hands on a copy. And I think the pandemic must have done a lot of similar things to a lot of other people. This podcast came about as a result of the pandemic and having more time, uh, you know, to at home, you know, having more time to be able to dedicate to to exploring some of these topics. So, no, for sure, appreciate that aspect of it. And it's the, you know, I I haven't published anything, but the little that I have heard about the writing process is that it's challenging, um, but sometimes you know it's it can be rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. And and as a lawyer, I had done a lot of writing briefs and uh, uh, motions and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And as a litigator, that what I was doing was telling a story in those. And so storytelling is something that I'd been doing for a long time. So. Um, it was, uh, it was fun to get it down onto paper once I got, uh, into it and it was, it was fun to try to make it work. And, you know, there are, I I tried to make sure that it wasn't all doom and gloom, that there were some things that were humorous and that there were some things that were, uh, touching and stuff like that, rather than just being all, uh, a horrible war experience. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is probably the second to last question, but, you know, are looking at that memoir, are there any, any specific lessons or any general lessons for that matter that you're, you're hoping audiences, you know, are able to take away from that? You kind of alluded to it a little bit already, but for a contemporary audience, perhaps like myself, um, that did not live through this chapter in American history, um, any particular lessons you're hoping readers readers might take away? Yeah, for sure. Um, I I think we need to look at what happened in Vietnam and pre- prevent that from happening again. And unfortunately, we continue to make these mistakes like the Iraq war, mm-hmm. um, like Afghanistan. I mean, we've got to realize that we can't turn foreign countries into the united states and do mm-hmm. what we want them to do um mm-hmm. it's just uh we, we we do it all the time and i think that we've been very very smart not to get troops into ukraine mm-hmm. just to provide them with with stuff because the fact of the matter is that we cannot force other people from other countries to do what we think of as what we think is right mm-hmm. um I, I also think that um, we need to look at why the Vietnam War was such a disaster. And um, there, are, there are two books that I think, there are so many have been written, but mm-hmm. two books that I think are very helpful for people who are trying to figure out how did this happen, mm-hmm. that it was such a disaster. I mean, 
we lost. Mm-hmm. I, I remember I had a T-shirt when I first started practicing law that, that I wore when we played touch football. And it had a big helicopter on the front and it said, Southeast Asia War Games, U.S. team, second place. Wow. And, you know, people would come up to me and say, how can you say that? And I say, I was on that team. I'm entitled to say this. Yeah. But there are two books, uh, uh, three books that I would recommend highly to people who want to know more about what happened here. Mm -hmm. One of them is Daniel Ellsberg's book, Secrets. Mm -hmm. Daniel Ellsberg was somebody who uh, was in the army and uh, the Marines and then was an analyst in DC and who decided that we weren't being told the truth about the war. And he disclosed the Pentagon Papers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my, he could have gone to jail for life for that. But uh, fortunately, uh, because the prosecution had had done some improper things, uh, he, he did not get uh, convicted. Mm-hmm. Wonderful book. Uh, another one, which I read recently, which is terrific, and it's from the completely opposite perspective of, of Ellsberg, is H.R. McMaster's book, Dereliction of Duty. Um, it is. It explains from his perspective, but I think it's accurate, how it was that the people in D.C., and particularly um, the Secretary of Defense McNamara, prevented the military from telling the, the president that they were going the wrong way. Wow. Um, it's a it's a great book, uh, and and I, I again, I, it's not from my perspective. He's he's not somebody that I would necessarily look up to, but he he definitely nails it. And then the last one, which I really uh, uh, encourage people to read, is called "What It Is Like to Go to War" by Carl Malantes. And Carl uh, also wrote one of the great novels about Vietnam called The Matterhorn. But Mm -hmm. what it's like to go to war really tells a reader what it is to be a person who is forced to be a warrior and how it is that we need to to, um, un-warrior them when they are finished being a warrior. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's it's a terrific book, very easy to read. And, And what it is most important to me. I have been involved in helping veterans groups uh, ever since I got back and helping veterans is we we need to realize that people who are put into a situation like uh, the Vietnam War or any war where their lives are in danger and they are likely to be killed and likely to suffer from both physical and mental problems afterwards need to be treated. And I think it's, it's, it's very important for that. And I hope that people take out of this, uh, my book or reading these other books that we need to support our veterans in every way possible because they are suffering things that the rest of us um, are not suffering. Yeah. No, thank you for those, Norm. Those I was Jotting the authors and names down as you were speaking, and we'll make sure to include those uh, those books in our our show notes once we're finished recording. But but thank you for those those anything to keep the 
keep the lessons from the past relevant and current and, and helping listeners apply them to kind of where we find ourselves today, I think is. But one thing that um, I really enjoy is going to high schools and talking about uh, what happened to me and showing the, the photos that, uh, mm-hmm. because the, you know, you get juniors and seniors in high school. And when you ta- tell them that my experience was that, you could be drafted and forced to fight in a war. Mm-hmm. They, their eyes get big and they can't believe that this could actually happen. Yeah. Uh, we are so lucky that we now have uh, no draft. We have an all volunteer army and we mm-hmm. need to support those people who, who serve in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we're on, uh, before we wrap up here, just wanted to, check back in on one item. So for folks that <clears throat> would be interested in in accessing your book and accessing some of these lessons that we just we just discussed, Norm, is there a a quick place that they can go to to pick up a copy? Well, it's available on Amazon, uh, okay. which is the easiest way. It's also uh, on um, another a couple of other uh, bookseller uh, lists of Barnes and Noble, that type of thing. And if you just put in keeping each other alive or put my name in, it'll come up and it's available, uh, you know, hard copy, soft cover, uh, Kindle. Nice. So it's easy, it's easy to get. It's not very expensive. And if sure. anybody gets a copy and uh, particularly in Sacramento and like, like me to sign it, I'll be very honored to sign it. But, um, um, it, it's been a great experience to not only publish a book, but to have people seem to find it uh, of interest and, and uh, compelling. Yeah. Well, thank you. I think that's a, a great note, note to end on Norm. Um, you know, thanks again for taking the time today, you know, to, to talk about, talk about your book, talk about some of what it contains um, and helping keep, keep these lessons alive because that's that's pretty much what we try and do on this on this podcast so thanks again for your time oh you're welcome it was my pleasure thanks for tuning in to this episode of the sacramento historical society's the american attic if you'd like to learn more about the society and upcoming speaker series please visit sachistoricalsociety.org if you have ideas for topics and speakers we can engage drop us a line at admin at sachistoricalsociety.org see you next time